Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Uh, good. Really good. Sitting up here at my house and it's snowing outside for mid to late March. Kind of crazy. Yeah. But uh, we'll take it. What was that a few weeks ago? You sent me a bunch of elk were out wintering within oh, sight from yeah, the house, Oh, right? yeah. There's, yeah, there's a big old herd of elk right above the house. Uh, I think we had that big storm back in February. And whenever you get that kind of big snow, it'll push them off the mountains and, and down here. And then they kind of just seem to just mill around down here until they are, you know, it gets too hot and then they'll go back up. But they like the once they come down, they just kind of stay down. Huh. I hadn't uh, realized that they came down that far. I hadn't seen them at your place. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Nice. Did you uh, do any like other super exciting, awesome dad stuff this weekend, like cleaning other closets or anything? <laughs> uh, no, not really, man. We just, just kind of played <laughs> with the kids all weekend. So yeah, uh, it was fun. Nice. Well, we, uh, we got multiple questions. There's a ton of good Monday Minute questions, number one. So thank you guys for sending these in. And uh, if you have something for us, email podcast at xmountgear.com. But uh, there was a few that came in over the last week or two all about packing out elk and different different questions related to packing out elk uh, or taking care of elk. And uh, I thought that that was, at first I was like, man, it's so far away. Maybe we should save these for later and closer to elk season. But my uh, thought was, it is awesome that guys are planning ahead and thinking of that. And especially guys who, you know, were uh, newer and and just planning already like it's cool to me that it's march and guys are number one excited about elk season and number two actually thinking ahead and planning ahead because that obviously means they're serious so let's go ahead and get into some of them um one of the first ones was about packing out the antlers uh i'll just go ahead and read the full question he says when you're packing out and know that you'll be making multiple trips is it better to carry the antlers out on the first trip or is it okay to leave them for a later trip and carry proof uh, and carry other proof of sex on your first trip? I'm asking because I've been toting a saw for skull capping so I wouldn't have to carry the whole skull. If it's okay to carry antlers later though, I could leave my saw at camp and bring it back only for the second trip when I get the antlers. So this is an interesting question to me, uh, just hearing different perspectives. And a lot of guys would say you like shouldn't pack out antlers first. The meat's the priority, what have you. And this guy was asking if it's okay to leave them, which I thought was a, kind of a good perspective and thoughts. So essentially this guy's saying, hey, if I know I'm going to be taking multiple trips with elk, maybe I'll leave my saw back at the truck or back at camp, not pack that around, and then pack it later when I go to get the antlers, if he's saying it's okay to get the antlers later. So um, some obvious thoughts that I have, Steve, but anything that stands out to you from that one? Yeah, no, that's, it's like I say backwards thinking, but, but different 180 degrees from my normal um, uh, perspective is get the meat out first, take care of the meat uh, and then go back and get the antlers. And I think, you know, like on Alaska, that's absolutely like a law. Um, the meat is the first thing to come out of the field or antlers are last uh, here in Idaho. I don't, I don't know if, it's i think that's might be in the rules as well man I, it's just something i've always done meat first antler second mm-hmm. um drives me nuts frankly like when if someone like takes precedent of oh i need to get this big rack out first you know so uh you know whatever uh so somebody it doesn't get damaged out here some squirrel doesn't chew on it or something i don't know um so yeah that's definitely how i approach it um and then you yeah, have a saw at, at camp if you want to skull cap it and go back later um 
we did randomly. I need to, uh, I should have asked Dwayne, uh, when we had Dwayne Magnuson on here from, uh, Magnuson Alaska adventures or, um, he, uh, on the sheep hunt, he, I think he just had a simple hacksaw blade that he like wrapped a duct tape handle onto well, and it what, worked. That's yeah, what Boshma had, right? Yeah. That's what Boshma had. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he got that idea from Dwayne. Um, gotcha. I just need to follow up on what the blade was, but it weighs nothing. Um, and it works really, really well. Like works better than any other kind of folding saw I've seen out in the field and probably cost you, you know, $4 to go buy that blade at home Depot. Yeah. Um, I need to follow up on exactly what that was. Cause it worked, worked great. Um, and low profile to slide in the side pocket of the pack and forget it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Boshma's, I didn't look at it super close cause I was hands deep in an elk, but I'm pretty sure it might've been a, like a fine tooth blade from a reciprocating saw. Um, and then as you said, yeah, just basically tape a handle and obviously need some sort of like super simple sheath just to keep the teeth from being exposed when it's in your pack. But something like that's yeah. good. I mean, this guy who wrote in actually said he has a saw that he packs around and it's 25 ounces. So that's a, oh, that's hefty. Yeah. yeah, yeah so hefty. <laughs> yeah, I think where this guy was coming from uh, and I'm reading between the lines on his email is he's asking if it's okay to leave the antlers because, and he said kind of in there, proof of sex. Right. And so, yes, definitely look at regulations, typically required to have proof of sex. Um, And so usually that's just literally keeping part of the sex organ attached to a rear quarter in the case of packing out a bull. And that's, you know, that's sufficient. That's what um, I tend to do. And then, as you said, Steve, antlers come later. If and when the meat's taken care of, that's the priority. So if you're strictly concerned with proof of sex, um, that doesn't need to be antlers. Um, and yeah, you can leave the antlers for later, pack a saw later if you want to. The other nice thing about doing that is you can decide uh, by bringing a saw later, do I even want to skull cap this, right? So maybe. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you're planning on skull capping it, but then shoot a decent bull and you're like, yeah, I kind of want a euro or I want to have the option for a euro. So it just gives you more flexibility um, and saves you uh, from packing around a saw if you don't have to. Yeah. The only, I think we've answered this question on the podcast, you know, maybe it was two years ago or something like that. But I said the only exception I could think is taking into account the temperature uh, and then kind of sun exposure where like, you know, you're getting everything out. And like, I could think of the bull I killed this year in September, we had it, you know, it was like 3000 feet different from where the bull was to the truck. Uh, and it was a, in a sunny day and where the, the meat was hanging, it was in this big shady tree and where the truck was, was just kind of dry, open sagebrush. Um, and I could see that scenario if it's going to be like a multiple day pack out of, kind of leaving meat up there to to stay as cool as possible and and mm-hmm. getting it out you know and obviously you're not just going to take antlers only out on the first trip you're always going to you know have a front shoulders and back straps you know you're just going to even out the loads but leaving is kind of thinking about that i guess um as far as the temperature at the truck versus up there and how much shade you got maybe it makes sense to make the antlers in one of the the first trips um that'd be the only time i would pack antlers first yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, essentially taking care of the meat's the priority, but that doesn't, as you're saying, necessarily mean taking it out first is what's right. best, right? Because yep. sometimes taking care of it is, as you said, better to let it cool, let it get in the shade, get a nice crust versus packing down where it's 20 degrees hotter and your truck's in the sun. So yeah, that's a that's a great point. 
Awesome. There was a, a separate question, again, on taking care of elk that's... Uh, we're just punching tags here virtually on this podcast. I like it. I was just listening to a Monday Minute, this guy says, from last summer. And there you guys discussed breaking down an elk using the gutless method. I've been intrigued to try this on my elk this coming year, but I don't recall hearing anything about how you guys would remove the tenderloins, or can you? Can you elaborate on that a bit? Um, yeah, great question. Definitely uh, totally possible to take the tenderloins doing the gutless method um, and would recommend doing that. They're a great cut of meat for sure. Um, a little bit, I don't want to say super difficult to describe, but much easier to see. And I'm sure there's probably some great videos on YouTube. But uh, to begin to explain it, Steve, how would you talk about getting the tenderloins out when doing the gutless method? Yeah, I'm pretty sure... Speaking of videos, either Corey Jacobson at Elk 101 or the Born and Raised guys have done an in-the-field video of how to do this. I feel like I think Trent at Born and Raised did one. This is a couple of years back. I would probably go watch that. Um, but in general, yeah, I, so gutless method, I basically break down, you know, I get the animal on its side. I try to get the animal in a neutral position. Sometimes like your bull in October last year, it's, that's unavoidable. Like the hill's still so steep and the terrain doesn't allow it. But if you can, um, you know, get the bull laying flat so that you can work on it and it's not trying to roll down the hill and roll around on you. And then I simply just take off, um, skin right up the back and then peel the hide all the way down, down the legs. Um, and then just, then I'll just take off the, the front shoulder, the rear, take off that side of the back strap. Uh, take out the rib meat. And then kind of once I've done all that, take off the neck meat. Once I've done all that, um, it's pretty easy to kind of go back there above the, the hip there at the back. Um, and then the, if the guts are still full of air, um, you kind of need to start like pushing the air out. Don't you want to put your knife into it, but just kind of push on it gently and squeeze the air out of it to kind of free up room in the cavity down there. And you can really, uh, just go in and there's kind of a technique to actually do this without a knife. You, you just kind of take your fingers and roll up into the tenderloin and just start pinching it and, and working up and down the tenderloin until it, it breaks free. Uh, and it, it works pretty well. I'm not a, every time I, it's like 50, 50, if I get it perfect or not. Um, I remember, uh, frankly hunting with Trent at born raised, he's really good at it. Um, of just getting that thing out. Absolutely perfect. Um, but it's, it's totally achievable. Um, I just go watch some of those videos. It's just going to make a lot more sense than me trying to describe it over the podcast. Yeah. And as you said, Steve, it's something you want to do after you've done everything else, just because it gives yes. you a lot more room to work. So yep. with a rear quarter removed, with a back strap removed, with rib yep. meat removed, if you're taking it, you're now left with this window between the backside of the ribs, the underside of the spine where your back strap was, and then where your rear quarter was. And right in that window, tucked up on essentially the underside of the spine, the underside of where your back strap was, is the tenderloin. Um, and as you said, a lot of times you kind of got to like push on the guts a little bit, just give yourself some room. Um, and then the most important thing is do as much by hand as you can before you start sticking blades anywhere. Um, and for me, it's just dependent on the animal. I've gotten some tenderloins out completely by hand. Um, and then sometimes I'll try to do 
as much as possible by hand, but then just the ends where the tenderloin is like the tips of the tenderloin, the left and right sides um, are attached, then you might have to make a cut. Um, and sometimes you have to make a cut in other areas as well, but there's a lot you can do by just breaking up, um, I don't know, it's some sort of like tissue or membrane essentially of how the tenderloin is in there. Um, and there's just a lot you can kind of massage out and, and get out. So once you have everything else off, you can kind of see that window um, just on the underside of the spine and, and really get in there and work with it. And it's pretty easy. Yep. All right. Let's talk about pack out strategy for elk now with a few guys. Hmm. So this gentleman wrote in and said, I'm one of three guys in our group that are hunting elk this coming archery season. We are all preparing physically, but will likely be considered pretty average physically at the time of the hunt. We plan to backpack hunt, but knowing our limitations, ideally we wouldn't kill an elk more than four to five miles from an accessible area. Would you do two light packouts or try to get everything in one trip, assuming an average sized satellite bull is what we kill? So, a lot there, three guys though. Uh, I'm glad he added average sized bull. <laughs> the size of the elk can <laughs> definitely make a difference. Uh, for sure. Um, shoot spikes. Yeah, shoot spikes. So, no, tasty spikes. You forgot tasty, tasty stuff. Mm, Mouth-watering tasty, tasty spikes. spikes. <laughs> uh, I'm, we've almost burned through my entire spike I killed. That in the, Have you? Uh, over like, I'm like sad about it. The meat's almost gone. Oh, dude, I took a, a round steak the other day and um, cast iron stovetop cooked that sucker, made some fajitas. Goodness gracious, it was so good. Ugh, yeah. Anyway, I'm getting all hungry. Um, so yeah, three guys, Steve, pack out strategy. We don't have all of the story, but I guess that's kind of the part of the point yeah. of what we can discuss is what are some of the variables to consider um, when um, it down? So first it's going to start with the terrain that you're hunting, right? Like, frankly, for me, most of the time, I try to backpack in somewhere where you start at the bottom. Uh, and that way you're always packing downhill. Uh, that that is going to make it, you know, six miles downhill versus three miles, but one mile that you got to climb 1500 feet is a drastically different pack out. Um, so if you can, in, and you know, your physical limitations, if you're new to backpack hunting, uh, if you're new to killing elk and packing them out, try to just try to access country where you start at the, the trailhead or wherever your access point is at the bottom and, and you're hiking up and that way everything's down and that's going to make a huge difference for you. Um, and then three guys with all archery tags, I would absolutely say you're going to be better off with more lighter trips, um, you know, to go say it's five miles in there. So you're 10 miles round trip, um, to do, to do that in two lighter trips versus, you know, so you're gonna hike 20 miles instead of 10 miles, but 20 miles with half the weight or 20 miles or 10 with a double the weight, the next day is going to be a drastic difference on how sore you are. And if you're, if it's, you know, that's probably a two day pack out, uh, with the lighter loads, but by that third day, you're, you're going to be able to hunt, right? If, if you just try to one trip it out of there and it's really heavy and you guys are just, they're going to be so sore that the, probably the next two days, you're just going to spend licking your wounds in camp. Um, so lighter trips is always, always better. It's, um, gosh, like when, 
whenever I'm hunting or Boschman and I are always joking with each other, like, God, you know what? We're just going to take lighter trips this time and not one trip this sucker out of here. And inevitably we're always like, even your bowl, we tried to throw into one trip it and then went down to the bottom and realized like, yeah, we're not making it up the other side with these, <laughs> with these packs. And they had to stash some of the meat. Um, we could, it's just what you said. You, we still had an elk to kill and right, we would have yeah. been trashed for two. We would have been trashed. Yeah. Uh, heck I was still trashed the next day regardless. Um, so that, yeah, that'd be my philosophy of, of lighter trips. If one strategy, and I've only had to do this a couple times, um, is if you are in a scenario where you got to go uphill, shuttle your meat to the top of the ridge. Like you're going to have, that's going to take the most energy and you're going to have, you know, the, the most energy, your, your muscles are going to feel good enough to do that at the beginning than at the end. So, and you know, say you're a thousand foot down in a hole get it, you know, just throw like one quarter on that freaking pack, get it to the top of the ridge, hike back down, grab the next quarter and get it all up to the ridge. Um, and you could also typically, if you can find a nice tree up on that ridge line where it's in the shade, you're going to have good winds. It's going to keep the meat cool. And then the next day you're just packing the meat downhill to your truck. Uh, I think that it's a really good strategy. And instead of only there's one, one bull is just a spike I killed by myself, but in particular, I remember doing that a few years back. Um, and it worked great. You know, it's definitely like that next day made it a lot better that I was just climbing uphill with an empty pack, strap the quarter on, come downhill with it. Um, so that's something I would really look at you know, even in a group setting, or if you guys are, you know, of, you know, kind of middle of the road physical fitness, uh, that, that's a good thing to do. So, mm-hmm. um, obviously you could get into deboning, uh, to save weight, you know, that's, um, that's nice. I've kind of, I'll, I'm, I've become anti deboning just cause I'm not great at it. And I, and by the time I'm all done and then you go to, you know, trim that meat up for processing, you just lose so much more meat cause you've exposed so much more to air. Um, I think if you really know what you're doing and you work the seams of the muscles and have a super clean, kind of get the muscle off the bone, you, you can kind of minimize that. And obviously you're going to save, um, some significant weight. I don't know if it's, you know, 20 pounds, 30 pounds of bone that you're not packing out of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's always, you know, so many variables of, as you said, terrain, weather, the amount of time you have, you know, how much time you're trying to salvage to fill more tags. I mean, there, there's a ton here. One thing that comes to mind with three guys is kind of a combination of what you're saying, Steve. Maybe all three guys shuttle it to a place where it's relatively accessible <clears throat> or you leave yourself with like the final three miles of pack out. But it's, a you know, once we get up here, it's like a much easier three miles to camp or to the truck, right? And potentially two of those guys keep hunting the next day and the guy who killed the bull is just kind of shuttling meat by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that has to happen, but that's definitely an option, you know, something to consider of what's all three work to get this to a spot where one guy can kind of manage some trips and then that guy can shuttle some meat while the other two guys really go get after it. So there's, you know, there's plenty of options, variables on shuttling it and one tripping it and all that. And it's really always just a decision that needs to be made based on the moment and the conditions and what you're up against. And take the time to do that. I mean, one thing I'm terrible about is just getting in a rush in general when something's killed. Right. And that's both with breaking down the animal and then packing my pack and hiking. And it's like, all those steps are so important. Like sit down, make a plan, 
look at what's truly like what you're up against and then, you know, make a thoughtful decision on that. And even packing your pack, right? Don't get in a rush, like make sure you're situated properly, adjusted properly. You know, something Steve, we've talked about before on the podcast is before you dive into the animal, like if you've just filled the tag, go ahead and get your pack ready to load it, right? So put your extra stuff away, get the meat shelf exposed. If you need to make some sort of adjustment on your pack, adjust it. If you need to get water, get water. If you need a snack, get all that stuff ready before you dive into the animal. Um, and then you're bloody and in a hurry and all that stuff. So again, it's nothing we can give you a specific answer on and what to do. It's just thinking through the variables and making a decision and make sure you give yourself time to, to make that decision. All right. Um, shifting gears, Steve, there's a, a scope question, a rifle scope question. Um, this guy wrote in and said, I just bought a Leupold VX5 HD, the three and a half, or sorry, three to 15 by 44, but I'm debating if I should return it for a Vortex Razor LHT. Do you have a preference? I will say that I really like Leupold's CDS, which is their custom dial system. Uh, he says, I'm not sure how accurate it is in varying hunting situations where there might be changes in temperature and barometric pressures. After your last couple podcasts, I'm also considering range finding binos, which kind of seems to defeat the purpose of the custom dial system. Uh, what would you do? So there's kind of multiple questions in here. Um, I, I was very interested in this one for one main reason is Steve, we've both shot the VX5 HD. I've had the Vortex LHT um, for a few months. And then there's a scope I would throw in here as a candidate that should be considered, and that's the Zeiss Conquest V4. Um, all three of those scopes are incredibly similar in price point, weight, features, what have you. Um, like if you're considering one, I'd consider all three of those. And I've actually am going to do a review on all three of those. Um, I've been spending time with all of them and wanted it to be somewhat comprehensive and not just like first impression. So that is to come. Um, and I'm not sure if that's gonna be an article or a video or what have you, but that's definitely gonna happen. I will say that of the three, they're all usable. Um, I've spent time with all of them, hunted with all of them, killed animals with all of them. Um, they're good scopes. There definitely are differences. So I'll dive in that to the review. Um, to get to his question on Leopold's CDS or custom dial system, it is cool. Um, it's a good feature. I've used one um, and found it to be accurate. It's just limited. So the, the biggest limitation is, as he mentioned, environmentals. Um, you have to have that dial built for um, a specific range of things like elevation, temperature, etc. And yes, it's not that you change quickly and your dial is no longer good, but there are situations where the environmentals could change the, the accuracy of your CDS. For someone like me who could be shooting at 500 feet or 8,000 feet, that's more of a problem than someone who's consistently shooting at, you know, called plus or minus 5,000 feet by a couple thousand feet. So again, that those are just the limitations. Then the other thing is just 
it's very specific to any load that you're using. So uh, in terms of both speed, bullet choice, BC, it's dialed into that. And then if you want to change your load, shoot a different bullet, what have you, your CDS is only good for that, that one load. So it's cool. Those are the limitations though. As he said, if he's considering range-finding binos, that's a much more versatile situation. Um, you can tailor those to whatever load you're shooting, wherever you're shooting, whatever the environmentals are. Uh, it's a much more robust, like comprehensive system, in my opinion, and that would be the way that I would go if you can do that. So, personally, I wouldn't choose a VX5 HD simply because of the custom dial system. Even if you don't have range-finding binos, um, it's super easy to build a chart for the environmentals you're heading into um, and tape that to your stock. That's something that I do anyway, even having range-finding binos. So if something goes down from a technical perspective, I always want a paper backup. Um, for any big hunt, I'm always going to have uh, tape to my rifle stock, you know, a dope chart with my drops, wind, all of that for the environmentals that I'm headed into. It's a backup, but it's there. Um, so again, I wouldn't choose a VX5 HD because of the CDS specifically. It is a great scope though. Um, yeah, I, there's a lot more I want to dive into, but it, it's kind of for the review and I'm not finished and have my full comprehensive thoughts on that. But I would say the VX5 HD, the Razer, the Vortex Razer LHT. And again, I would throw in that um, Zeiss V4. Those are three very good scopes. Um, have used them all, would take any of them into the field again. Uh, spoiler alert, I think I'd choose the Zeiss if he put a gun to my head at this point. Um, but yeah, there's there's pros and cons to anything, and I guess I'll have more to say about that in the future. Steve, anything I missed or you want to add to that one? No, I think you're yeah, spot on, man. The, the CDS dial to me is, is um, a nice, simple very cool tool it's it's got its limitations as you mentioned um you know i think you could if you knew you were gonna ever shoot over 400 yards and you could be like all right most of my hunts take place at 6,000 feet and it's 40 degrees you kind of plug all that in you know the exact bullet you want to shoot uh and you're not going to change that um i think you could have like really good results for with it you know i think yeah. there's a lot to be said for taking out variables in a hunting situation and um like we go back to podcast with uh, Kleckner on what is acceptable accuracy. And to mm -hmm. him, his definition is hitting the kill zone. So like how accurate do you truly need to be? Do you need to hit a, a one inch freaking dot at hundred yards? Or are you trying to shoot a 12 inch pipe plate at 400 yards? Right. So his, his definition would be if you hit that 12 inch plate, every time you've done what you set out to do. And I think that CDS dial can absolutely do that. Are you going to like shoot, you know, super tight groups every single time at different distances and over different terrains? No. Um, but are you probably always going to hit the kill zone? Yes. So uh, yeah. anyway, a lot to be said for simplicity. Like the new range finding binos to me are just with the ballistics built in or they make things so awesome. I'm you know, doing the elk hunt last year with the SIGS BDX system. Um, it's just freaking killer, right? You just, pull it up and bam, there's your range. And then you just dial on your scope and, and, uh, or gives you your MOA and then you dial that and you shoot, um, the new 
Swarrow, ERH, TAs, uh, and I believe the Zeiss variation of that, where they've got uh, barometric pressure, temperature built into it. I mean, that even further simplifies the, the whole process of truly getting a, a very accurate reading um, dial and shoot, and you can be super precise, you know? Um, so you got to pick your, um, pick the features you want. And again, you know, I'm always going to err on the side of simplicity. I don't want things too complicated. You know, you're going to, you're only going to get a few seconds if that buck is moving through the trees and he's got a shot. You don't need to be like, um, you know, like I think I was, I can't remember who I was talking to, but a friend of mine was like, well, yeah, but you just pull out your phone and you do this and you do that. I'm like, dude, I don't like, in a real <laughs> you know, like that doesn't freaking happen. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, um, you got a few seconds to react, um, and you got to freaking make it count. And if you're if you're limited and, and handicapped by like, okay, here's the range. Now I pull out my phone, and if even if it takes you 15 seconds, you've there's a 50-50 shot. You've missed your shot window there. So yeah. um, the the simpler we can make things, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll say the the CDS like if that applies, and if you have. Uh, consistency um, and where you hunt and then um, range like it's great like the one that I had and developed um, this was several years ago um, but it was on the Tika that I built in 30-06 and I was shooting factory ammo at the time and I took that thing out to 7 or 750 um, and it did well so it you know it can do it it's just that I could be hunting in Missouri or Idaho or Colorado or Alaska and a lot of different variables. And it doesn't always make the most sense, you know, when you're bouncing around like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great, simple choice for sure. Um, And the VX five, I mean, truly is a very, very good scope as well. So it's, it's a good option to consider. Um, Yeah. It's just, again, versatility, and simplicity like that's always like a balance right and obviously the ideal is to have both like all in one um, but this is an example where cds is simplicity range finding bino is versatility right so and you can you know you can basically estimate how effective a cds is going to be for you just really by running numbers through a ballistics calculator i mean that's all you're mm-hmm. all you're looking to do is compare like if you know you have two different hunts, two different times a year. You're going to look at elevation, average temperature, things like that. You can go, okay, my personal comfort range is 400 yards or 300 yards, whatever that is. And you can say, okay, here's hunt A and the uh, environmentals of that. And at 400 yards, I'm, you know, 8 MOA, right? And then here's hunt B in a different state, different time of year, different environmentals. Only by changing the environmentals, how different is your holdover at 400 yards? How close is it to the made up eight MOA that I just said for hunt A? And you can see, okay, a CDS that's dialed for this hunt or that hunt, or maybe somewhere in between is going to be only an inch and a half difference between two different hunts, right? Two different times a year. Like that's probably completely fine. So really just crunch the numbers. If you're really interested in a CDS or if you're trying to figure out what you should quote unquote program your CDS for, right? So like what, what elevation should I choose? What temperature should I choose? What, what have you just run those numbers? That's the one thing 
more and more and more when I have gotten into shooting is just realizing that a lot of it's just, it's data, it's numbers, it's math. And like you can pre pre-configure and estimate and predetermine a lot of different variable variables just by running scenarios and situations. So yeah, Steve, good one. Um, plenty more. We actually had some questions, thoughts, feedback on the recent episode we did with Chris way, uh, more on shooting on the rifle craft stuff, but definitely some questions and things I want to spend some time with. So we'll save those for another day. So this Monday minute doesn't run for an hour plus. Listeners, as always, if you have anything else for us to add to the list, certainly uh, enjoy these episodes and thinking through and discussing these things. So just shoot us an email. It's a podcast at exomountgear.com. And again, if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.